From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Today we're featuring a couple of my favorite segments from past years. Later in the show, we'll talk with historian Eric Foner about voting rights and voter suppression, about who gets to be a citizen, the rights of undocumented immigrants, and about the roots of mass incarceration. They all relate to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, part of the country's attempt to redefine citizenship after the end of slavery. But first, Pramila Jayapal is head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She'll explain how she went from being an investment banker as a young immigrant to a lifelong organizer. That's coming up in a minute. Now it's time to talk with Pramila Jayapal. She represents Seattle in the House of Representatives, and she describes herself as a lifelong organizer. She's co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and she's written a wonderful book, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila Jayapal, welcome to the program. John, thank you so much for having me. Well, your new book tells the story of how you got into political work. You are an immigrant from India who came to the United, the United States in 1982 to go to college. You were not yet 17 years old. You know, my dad had very little money in his bank account. I talk about this. He had $5,000 left in his bank account. He used all of it to send me here. And when your parent makes a sacrifice like that and sends your, their kid across the ocean, not knowing if they're ever going to come back, as it turns out, we've never lived on the same continent <laughs> since I was 16. They're oh. still in India. You know, he had a very special idea of what success meant. To him, success meant you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, because that was what would guarantee your future financial stability. Well, you started out by doing what your father wanted when you graduated. You applied for jobs in investment banking. Uh, I love the story you tell about how in one of your job interviews, you were asked what you would do in a meeting if a male colleague said, honey, go get me some coffee. What was your answer? I said I would do just what I'm going to do now. And I got up and left. <laughs> and, and, and what happened then? Well, they, they called me back and they said, oh, you're exactly the kind of woman we want. You know, come back and, and, and uh, we'll give you a job offer. And I said, thank you very much, but no thank you. Um, and I, I did not end up working for that firm. I worked for another investment banking firm in leverage buyouts um, in the mid-1980s when Mike Milken was king and leverage buyouts were really big. And I will tell you that it taught me a couple of things. First of all, it taught me what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life, and that was investment <laughs> okay. banking. So I left, and I tell people that's very important to find out what you don't want to do as much as it is to find out what you do want to do. But the other thing it taught me was very strong skills in financial uh, analysis, financial management. I'm very comfortable with numbers. I'm very comfortable with, um, you know, all of that. And so that has really served me well, both as when I was starting a nonprofit organization that became the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state, but also now serving on the budget committee, you know, coming up, talking to some of the world's best economists, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, Joseph Stieglitz, as I'm creating the Paycheck Recovery Act. Um, I think that 
that experience actually really helped to build my confidence in those areas that have been quite important. Um, and certainly as I'm calling out Wall Street now, um, I understand what that means. And even questioning Sundar Pichai <laughs> from Google the other day, I talked about how the ad exchange that Google has is sort of like um, an unregulated stock market where people can, can engage in insider trading. You know, so I, I draw on these experiences all the time and what I'm doing now, even though it's not what I ended up doing with my life. So when you left investment banking, you went to the other end of society, uh, Cabrini Green in Chicago, in what is often called a bad neighborhood. But you said you liked working in a, what's called a bad neighborhood. How come? Well, I was tutoring Cabrini Green. It was was not no longer exists, but was one of um, the largest uh, projects in South Chicago. And I really wanted, I was in graduate business school, but I really wanted to do things that mattered. And tutoring kids was something that appealed to me. And so I would make my trek down to South Chicago and, and being in the midst of that project, that housing project was formative because I saw how people lived and I saw the things that we needed to do as government to really provide safer environments, better housing for people. And then, of course, I got very deeply into Saul Alinsky and uh, community organizing in the south end of Chicago, working with Mary Houghton and the South Shore Bank. And I, I want to ask you about so South Shore Bank because you say one meeting there changed your life. That's pretty dramatic. What kind of single meeting could change a person's life? Well, I met Mary Houghton, who was the executive director of South Shore Bank, one of the founders. And um, she introduced me to the idea that I could use my business skills for good, that I could focus on economic development as a way to make vocation and avocation the same thing. And so that was the beginning of really opening my eyes to this whole other world. I could use my business skills, but do economic development. I ended up going to Thailand and working in refugee camps and doing rural economic development. And then, of course, eventually moving into the public sector. You have one great sentence when you uh, describe your decision to leave the private sector. You say, let's be real. It takes a lot to get rid of the pressure and expectations of your family. I think every immigrant kid in college right now knows exactly what you're talking about. How did you do it? Well, I just, um, I had to trust myself. And then I had to say to my parents, look, you've given me all of the foundations. And now you have to trust me. You have to, you have to allow me to trust myself and you have to trust me. And it was not an easy thing. And my dad, for years, even when I had started the most successful immigrant rights organization in the state, I, you know, he's there, he's meeting the governor, who's our keynote speaker, and he says, oh, yes, she likes to do this volunteer work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just takes a lot, you know, to, to kind of change how your parents see things. But I will say that I think that they're proud of me. They scratch their, they scratch their heads many times during my career but I just kept saying, look, this is what I want to do. This is what makes my heart happy. This is what I believe I can do to make a difference. And in the end, I had to just follow my path. So you went to Thailand and worked in a refugee camp. Then you decided to go back to India. You came back to the United States. You got married. You had a baby. You got divorced. You moved into your own place as a divorced mother. Your baby had health problems. And what was the date you moved 
September 10th, 2001. Mm. Day before September 11th. And you say that 9-11 was the first time in America that you felt scared, and it wasn't another terrorist attack that frightened you. That's right. It was the um, hatred that I saw, um, the xenophobia that I saw, and the incursions of civil liberties ultimately by the government in the wake of the passage of the Patriot Act and so many other things. You know, the original Muslim ban was passed right after 9-11. And I saw that and I saw the sort of the, the way in which patriotism um, you know, combines with fear to suppress dissent. So all of a sudden, all these people um, with all these hate crimes and the Bush administration actually themselves in you know moving forward policies that curtailed civil liberties for people just because of where you were born or what religion you practiced. And yet, if you tried to speak up against that, somehow you were on the side of terrorists. It was us versus them, and you were with them. And it reminded me of the Japanese internment and other times in our country where um, patriotism and fear together have been used, as I said, to suppress dissent. And I felt like I needed to speak out against that. And, um, and so I did. What I thought originally was going to be just fighting individual hate crimes by some individuals against another very quickly turned into fighting the U.S. government, taking on the Bush administration, successfully winning um, uh, a lawsuit around the deportation of thousands of Somalis, and then going on to constantly challenge the deportations, secret detentions, and all of the things that happened in the wake of 9-11. You have a great story about uh, meeting your Seattle congressman who was the predecessors in the seat you now hold, Jim McDermott, your idea was to declare the entire state of Washington a hate-free zone. He liked the idea and said, uh, where do we start? And you said, how about tomorrow? And what was his response? (laughs) He leaned back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, who are you again? <laughs> because these are, this was just six days after 9-11, and I was saying we needed to get the governor and the mayor and everybody to come out, declare the state a hate-free st- zone. You end your book with the lessons you've learned, and the first one is own yourself and stay open. You say, don't try to be someone, try to do something. Explain what you mean. Well, I think that there are a lot of people, particularly in politics, um, who think about who they want to be, not what they want to do. And the only reason I'm, I like being a member of Congress is because it gives me a platform to do things that I think are going to make a difference for the world. And so I just want people to be authentic to themselves, to not change themselves because they think that that's going to bring them more power and prestige, but also to think about your legacy of action, not just having a title before your name. That's great. But the only reason I like the title is because it allows me to go to the airport in the wake of the Muslim ban and threaten to storm the airport if I don't get to talk to the head of customs and and border protection and get the people off the plane that are about to be deported on the tarmac, you know, or because I can use my position to get into a federal prison and talk to hundreds of moms and dads who have been separated from their children. So that's the action, and it has to be about the action. Um, And you've got to be real for who you are and what you believe in. And the last lesson in your book is 
leave space for new leadership to emerge. Don't hang on to power. But we want you to stay in power. We need you to stay in power. Well, I will stay in power for as long as I feel like there's something that I can achieve. And, you know, when I stepped down from One America, people thought I was crazy. It was 12 years I was there as the executive director. I built it from nothing to this incredible organization that had done so much. And they said, why are you leaving? It's the height of your success. And I said, well, first of all, I'd rather leave when I'm at the height of success than when I'm on the downturn of it. Um, And secondly, you know, change is good. So it doesn't mean we're going to leave immediately. But we do have to continue to be aware that there's time for other people to come forward. And there's lots of people to come forward and do that work. Pramila Jayapal, her new book is Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila, thanks for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. I love the nation. So thank you so much for what you do. We spoke with Pramila Jayapal in October 2020. Now it's time to talk about rights, voting rights, birthright citizenship for the children of immigrants, the right of minorities to equal protection. All of those rights come not from the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Instead, they resulted from the Civil War and Reconstruction, which expanded our rights dramatically. For that history, we turn to Eric Foner. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who teaches at Columbia. He writes frequently for the New York Times op-ed page and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. He's written many award-winning books. The new one is The Second Founding. How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Eric Foner, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, today we live in a time, this is a quote, when principles which we all thought to have been firmly and permanently settled are being boldly assaulted and overthrown. Who said that? Was it Joe Biden? No, it was Frederick Douglass in the 1890s who was commenting on the rollback, as they call it nowadays, of so many of the rights that African Americans had achieved uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War. This was when the right to vote was being taken away from black men, when black education in the South was being starved of money. So Douglass was pointing out a basic fact, which is that rights can be gained and rights can be taken away. And my book talks about putting powerful new rights into the Constitution, but then later, many of those rights being abrogated with the acquiescence of the entire nation and the Supreme Court. Well, the rights we're talking about here are the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment established birthright citizenship and equal protection, and the 15th put the right to vote in the Constitution. We call these the Reconstruction Amendments. They were all passed after the Civil War to deal with the issues raised by the Civil War, which is why the first one, the 13th, abolished slavery. But Congress didn't stop there. Why not? Well, first of all, abolishing slavery, of course, is a great achievement for humanity and the the American uh, Republic, but it doesn't tell you what is going to come after slavery. What are the rights that these 
four million emancipated slaves are going to enjoy? What role will they play in American society? Will they be citizens? Will they be uh, equal citizens? Will they have a political voice? So, in a sense, what follows the 13th Amendment is trying to work out the consequences of the 13th Amendment, the consequences of the abolition of slavery in this country. The 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, as you said, establish the citizenship of black people, establish the equality before the law of all people in the United States, and gave black men the right to vote, which very, very few had enjoyed in the period before the Civil War. All three Reconstruction Amendments empowered Congress to enforce their provisions. But didn't all amendments to the Constitution do that? Uh, No, they didn't. Uh, In fact, in many parts of the Constitution, the enforcement mechanism is very uh, unclear. The Bill of Rights, which establishes, you know, most of our basic civil liberties, does not have an enforcement clause. It's not clear who's supposed to guarantee our freedom of speech or trial by jury, etc. So these three enforcement clauses, as you say, at the end of each of the three amendments, were actually a major departure. They, Congress wanted to make sure that they retained the power to kind of make sh- to be certain that these rights were being guaranteed. And if they, if they were being violated, Congress wanted the power to step in and uh, remedy the situation, as they tried to do uh, a good number of times during Reconstruction. And the big change here with previous amendments, especially the Bill of Rights, is the Bill of Rights restrains the power of the federal government. The 13th and 14th and 15th expand the power of government. The original Bill of Rights sort of sees government is the problem, to use a recent formulation. The Reconstruction Amendments take the opposite view, that government exists to advance and and defend our rights. Yes, uh, as Charles Sumner said, uh, these amendments made the federal government the custodian of freedom. It's not just government, it's which government. The Bill of Rights restrains the national government. It begins with the words, Congress shall make no law. It restrains Congress from interfering with your freedom of speech, let us say. Uh, Before the Civil War, the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. The states could suppress your freedom of speech. They did try to give an anti-slavery speech in South Carolina. They wouldn't allow that. But that wasn't a violation of the Bill of Rights because it wasn't the federal government doing that. Now, after the Civil War, this completely changes. It is that Congress is empowered. Congress shall have the power, not Congress shall make no law. And the states are the ones who are seen as a danger to liberty. The 14th Amendment says, you know, no state can deny you the equal protection of the law. Congress felt that the, because of slavery, because of the Civil War, because of the ideology of states' rights that had been so central to slavery, there was a need to empower the national government to protect the rights of citizens against violations in the states. Well, we're in a political season now, so let's look at the 15th Amendment establishing a right to vote. How come the right to vote was not in the original Constitution? Was that just an oversight? Well, the original states, uh, 13, wanted to be able to regulate the right to vote by themselves. And each state, even up to today, each state has different voter requirements, you know, whether in some states you have to have a certain kind of ID to vote, in some states you have to live the, have lived there a certain amount of time or not. The provisions of the Constitution in the amendments relating to voting are all sort of negative. 
15th Amendment says you can't deny anyone the right to vote because of race. But there are many other grounds you can deny someone the right to vote. In Reconstruction, the radical Republicans wanted a positive amendment. They said, no, we want an amendment which uniformly gives every adult male, unfortunately not women in their view at that time, every adult male citizen should have the right to vote, and that's what the Constitution should say. Uh, If they had managed to do that, it would have solved a lot of problems that came later, including today with voter suppression laws. But the states, even northern states, wanted to keep their own voting requirements. So they didn't, the, the Republicans in Congress didn't feel they could get an amendment which created a uniform voting uh, you know, system for the whole country. They couldn't get that ratified by three quarters of the states, which is necessary. The 15th Amendment establishes the right to vote in the Constitution for the, for the first time, and it doesn't mention women. On the other hand, it doesn't mention men either. It's just about race. There's nothing in the 15th Amendment that says you can't allow women to vote. And indeed, by the late 19th century, a number of states did allow women to vote. Remember, in 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, free African-Americans could vote on the same, with the same qualifications as whites in only five states, all of them in New England and with very tiny black populations. They could not vote in Ohio. They could not vote in Pennsylvania. They could not vote in Illinois, Lincoln's home state. Uh, so enfranchising black men, even though there were limits to that amendment, was an amazing transformation in the body politic of the United States. And, of course, it led directly to the election of many, many hundreds of African-American men to public offices in the Reconstruction South. So it, it launched this experiment in interracial democracy, which was a very remarkable thing for, you know, 19th century America. Let's talk about the 14th Amendment. It guarantees equal protection of the laws. You said the 15th Amendment is for citizens. Is the 14th for citizens? Is Or does it give equal protection to children from Guatemala or Honduras who've been separated from their parents after crossing the border. Do they have any rights here in the land of the free? The language of the 14th Amendment, Section 1, is very interesting. On the one hand, it begins by talking about citizens. Any person born in the United States is a citizen. Now, the people you just mentioned who cross the border, they're not citizens because they were not born in the United States. They might, in the future, be able to become naturalized citizens. But if one of those people has a child in the United States, that child is a citizen. No question about it. That child born in the United States, it doesn't matter who the parents are. It doesn't matter what the legal status of the parents is. The child born in the United States is a citizen. And no state can take away the privileges and immunities of citizens, according to the 14th Amendment. It doesn't say exactly what those are. But later, it says no person can be denied equal protection of the law. No person. Person is a broader category than citizen. What's happening at the border now, however, is a little different because the 14th Amendment is mostly about states doing this. No state can deny you equal protection of the law. And all the reprehensible things going on at the border are being done by the federal government, not by the states. The ACLU is currently in court uh, litigating the question of whether people who cross the borders, whether they have a right to a hearing, a right to some kind of due process from the federal government, even though they're not American citizens. 
you know, with the current Supreme Court, I'm certainly not willing to make a prediction as to how much credence will be given to the rights of these people. And, you know, one of the lessons, as we said before, of the whole Reconstruction period and its aftermath is that um, a conservative Supreme Court can... um, can take away rights which people thought they uh, previously enjoyed. Okay, let's talk about the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. But I thought Lincoln abolished slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation. You say the Emancipation Proclamation was the largest act of slave emancipation in world history. Everybody knows Lincoln freed the slaves. Is, is everybody right. wrong? They're partly right and partly wrong. The Emancipation Proclamation declared free about 3.2 million slaves. That's more than any other single act like that in in history that that I'm aware of. But there were still about three-quarters of a million who were not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. These were the slaves in the four border states, uh, Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, that remained in the Union. They did not join the Confederacy, even though they were slave states, and therefore the proclamation, which was a military measure against the Confederacy, did not apply to them. And Lincoln also exempted some parts of the South. So you have three-quarters of a million who are not declared to be free on uh, January 1st, 1863. Uh, the other p- point, though, is that freeing individuals, even large numbers of them, doesn't end slavery. Slavery is created by state law, And those laws have to be repealed to really abolish the institution of slavery or superseded by a constitutional amendment, which is what eventually happens. I am not in any way trying to minimize the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation, which changed the character of the Civil War very dramatically, but it did not end the institution of slavery. There's some fine print in the amendment abolishing slavery that most of us hadn't noticed until the last few years. Where is slavery permitted in the United States? Well, it says uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime. Prisoners can be subject to involuntary labor. Now, at the time the 13th Amendment was passed, uh, very few people noticed it at all. It was almost like boilerplate language. That language was in the constitutions of most states at that time, North and South, the idea of prisoners working. You have to remember that there were very few prisoners at that time. This was not mass incarceration or anything like that. There were tiny numbers of prisoners and prisons. And, you know, some states thought, well, they should work to help pay the cost of the prison. But what happens, of course, and tragically, is that after the end of Reconstruction, the southern states used this to create a giant system of convict labor. They lease out convicts, almost all of them black, not all, but the vast majority black. They lease them out to uh, work on plantations or mines under terrible conditions. Uh, Many of them die. uh, And of course, it's on involuntary labor. They're not paid or anything like that. They have no uh, (laughs) right to complain about their working conditions. That's all allowed by the courts because of this prisoner exemption in the 13th Amendment. At the time, nobody virtually even noticed it. You read all the debates in Congress, it's barely mentioned. You read the press debates about the 13th Amendment, very, very few newspapers uh, even noticed it. And most historians have pretty much ignored including me, I have to admit, me too. Have, have ignored it until 
very recently when mass incarceration, of course, is a major public issue. And then a few years ago, there was that documentary 13th, which exposed the extent of prison labor at, at the moment. You've described how the ambiguity that was written into many of the Reconstruction Amendments opened the door to decades of centuries and more than a century of conflict over the meaning of terms like equal protection and the right to vote. Don't you wish the people who wrote the Reconstruction Amendments had done a better job? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I think it's good that they, they wrote in terms of general principle, not specific rights. Because if you start listing specific rights, you may miss some that, that are not important when you are writing, but become For example, the most famous 14th Amendment decision of the Supreme Court recently was the gay marriage decision. Denying people the right to marry, states denying people the right to marry because of sexual orientation is a violation of equal protection of the law. Well, the people who were writing the 14th Amendment in 1866 were not thinking about gay marriage, right? That was not on the political agenda at that time. Um, so if they had begun just listing all sorts of rights, they would have certainly left that out. But what they did was put these general principles into the Constitution, which have expanded enormously in the 20th and into the 21st century. They weren't really thinking about equal rights for women, but the language of equal protection allowed people like Pauli Murray and Ruth Bader Ginsburg to use the 14th Amendment to attack laws that discriminated on the basis of gender. And that was totally plausible given the general language of the uh, 14th Amendment. Also, people like John Bingham, who wrote the first section pretty much, they wanted to leave the door open to future expansions. They, they, they understood you can't predict what 50 years from now, 100 years from now are going to be, you know, uh, is going to be on people's minds. But we can at least create a situation where the principle of equality can be applied. That's why they said Congress will have the power to enforce this. 50 years later, Congress may think, well, there's a different, you know, issue here, but the principle of equality can be enforced with regard to it. So, Actually, I think the ambiguity is a good thing, and it, it's a source of power. If we ever get a better Supreme Court, which maybe we will one of these days, there's a lot of latent power in those three amendments that have never been used, really, by the courts, which could allow a more vigorous protection, particularly of racial justice in this country, than the courts have allowed in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Eric Foner. His terrific new book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Eric, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on, John. We spoke with Eric Foner in July 2019. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. 
and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>